0: Talk about walking into a tough situation. Before the shattered windows were swept up in the January attack on the Capitol, the sergeants-at-arms of both the House and the Senate and the Chief of the Capitol Police were all gone. Solving the long-term security issues for the Capitol falls to a new crew. For one view of what's ahead, we turn to one member of that crew, the new Senate Sergeant-at-Arms, retired Army Lieutenant General Karen Gibson. Ms. Gibson, good to have you on.
1: Hey, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me.
0: And I don't know whether to call you general or sergeant.
1: (laughs) Well, my first name is Karen.
0: Okay, well, we can use that as well. And I'd like to begin with a quick review of exactly what a sergeant-at-arms does, because I think most people have kind of a Lions Club view of it, and it's ceremonial, but it sounds like a lot more to it than what we might understand.
1: Yeah, certainly. So the official title is the Sergeant at Arms and Doorkeeper of the Senate. And it's a position that goes back to the 1780s when originally they had a challenge keeping lawmakers at work. And the Sergeant at Arms was charged with you know, making arrests and bringing senators to the Senate to perform their duties when necessary. Now it's more of a job of keeping people who don't belong in the Senate out. But the Sergeant at Arms is the senior law enforcement official for the U.S. Senate and does manage you know, the doorkeeper functions for the Senate. And there are some significant security responsibilities. But the sergeant at arms is also the senior protocol officer for the U.S. Senate. And then finally, there are a great deal of service support functions that the Sergeant at Arms is responsible for as the executive officer of the Senate. So everything from custodial services and parking to the Senate recording studio and appointments desks to telephones, IT and cybersecurity. Uh, So it's really, in some ways, uh, my opportunity to finally serve as a headquarters battalion commander, a job I, I never had in the Army, but. That I relish now.
0: I was going to say, it's very similar to an Army officer job. In some ways, you command. In some ways, you are responsible for a lot of functions you don't perform directly. And in many ways, you also serve.
1: Yes. The Army career, a military career, was a good preparation for this job. Some of the law enforcement aspects are, of course, new to me. But, you know, I think by the time you become a general officer, you've got a proven ability to lead large organizations and all that that entails. And You know, frankly, in my career, uh, as you go up, many of those organizations are largely civilian organizations, no longer primarily filled with military service members. You know, also useful in this remote work time period, I've led very geographically dispersed organizations. As a brigade commander in the Army, I had entities on five different continents. So you have to find ways to communicate, collaborate, and synchronize across very vast geographic distances and time zones. I think the military is a good preparation for those broad and disparate mission sets. Again, many of those service support things that I mentioned. And then crisis management experience and crisis operations, whether that's deployed in support of combat missions or, you know, we displaced the entire CENTCOM headquarters when I was there in the face of Hurricane Irma, uh, sustaining our continuity of operations to include kinetic strikes in support of operations in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and Yemen – I think that's good prep for some of the emergency response functions that we're required to prepare for here at the Capitol. And then finally, I think I'd mention that, although I'd never worked in the legislative branch before, and it is different, as you become a senior military officer, working through the challenges of the interagency process, or, you know, for instance, my time at the Director of National Intelligence, where you're trying to synchronize the effort of 16 different federal agencies – is a good preparation for recognizing and understanding the goals and objectives of various organizations and working together with them toward common solutions that are going to balance those perhaps sometimes disparate equities to the fullest extent possible.
0: And in many ways, you're working for and with people you might have testified in front of in earlier years. How are relations with the senators? What's it like? Are they nice to you and so forth?
1: Sure. Everyone has been very courteous. I think it's marked by, I hope, mutual respect. You know, the day-to-day functioning of the sergeant-at-arms is largely done through their staff. I think it would be my intent, certainly, the goal is that a senator doesn't need to get involved or interested in the details of what the sergeant-at-arms is doing to support his or her ability to perform their legislative function. If it does come to their attention, then that would indicate there's a problem. So most of the time we are dealing with the staffs of the senators on the many aspects that the sergeant-at-arms performs to support them.
0: We're speaking with Karen Gibson, the new sergeant at arms of the Senate. And in the daily work, how much interaction do you have, A, with the House sergeant at arms and B, with the Capitol Hill police?
1: So I probably speak to the chief of police or the assistant chief almost, I would say, six days a week. And I deal with the House Sergeant-at-Arms frequently throughout the week. I welcome my new partner, William J. Walker, another retired general officer. I think this is his second week on the job. So we have some very shared perspectives and backgrounds, shared visions for the future security of the Capitol complex, and really try to cooperate with him to the fullest extent possible so that we can arrive at bicameral solutions when possible.
0: It's about, what, a 200-yard walk between the two spots?
1: Oh, no, I don't even think it's that. Between my office and his, we're both in the principal historic Senate complex, and I'm right off the dome, and he's on the other side.
0: All right. And let's get to the report that uh, former General Honoré prepared in the aftermath of the break-in. That was primarily a House report, but have you read it, and there must be some general lessons learned and possible recommendations for both sides of the sergeants-at-arms?
1: Certainly. Of course, I read it. I was actually on his team. I was, In fact, that's how, how, how I came to become the Senate sergeant-at-arms was my initial participation on General Honoré's security review. And I would say that the 6th January attack, shocking as it was, really allowed us to reveal some systemic issues across the board. And it presents an opportunity for deep introspection and course correction. I think we have a fleeting opportunity for change, both based on an unusual appetite for change in a very tradition-heavy organization, as well as potential for security supplemental funding. And so I think it's probably not a matter, as we look to transform security at the legislative branch, not a matter of doing what we did before, only better. It's finding new, different, better ways to secure the Capitol, whether that's modernizing some of our current processes that are inefficient, ineffective, or making better use of modern technologies to surveil, identify, and detect threats to the Capitol, or better integrating, largely on the part of the Capitol Police, with organizations that are charged with tracking intelligence and threat data for domestic or foreign threats to the Capitol. There are a number of different things that we can pursue, many of which were outlined in the Honoré Report, and I look forward to working with the Capitol Police and my House counterpart as well as the architect of the Capitol, who's the other member of the Capitol Police Board, to try to not only implement some of those specific fixes, but develop, you know, a vision, a strategic vision for transforming security at the Capitol.
0: Yes, there was a lot of recommendations with respect to the Capitol Police on beefing up their intelligence capabilities. But you can imagine, for example, in the integrative Aspect of this, just making sure that if the Capitol Police do get some intelligence piece of information that could affect the sergeants at arms, that there would be a mechanism by which they'd tell you.
1: Absolutely, yes. And I don't think that was a primary shortcoming, but it's really a matter of integrating well with the elements in the metropolitan area that are tracking a variety of threats. I think 6 January was unique in that the Capitol itself was a specific focus of the threat. But many times it may be a more generalized threat to federal buildings in the Washington area or to symbols of government, in which case we need to be working closely with the Metropolitan Police, the Park Police, the Secret Service, the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, and others.
0: And by the way, speaking of your physical office, you've got a really good one, don't you, with respect to Washington, D.C.?
1: I do, but I don't want to brag about it too much because I've heard that, you know, Senators who outrank me may look out the window and decide that someone else should have this office and I'll find myself in the basement. But I have a great view of the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Monument. And it just reminds me every day when I come in and look down the mall, what an honor it is to support this branch of our government.
0: Yeah, you can stare right down a couple of miles away and right into Abraham Lincoln's eyes there. And just finally, any other impressions on the job so far?
1: Well, as I said, it's a tremendous honor. You know, I was a child of the bicentennial, and 1776 was a really formative year in terms of my understanding of how our nation was formed and how unique our system of government was from its inception. And, you know, while it's sometimes messy and frustrating up close... It's just really, as I said, a tremendous honor to come work here. And, you know, i learn something every day. I see something new every day. The other day I found a door that says John Adams walked through this door. And so I think, you know, part of our charge here is to honor tradition while embracing innovation and ensuring that our support and security processes are modern and sufficient in a way to enable that rich tradition to continue.
0: Karen Gibson is the Sergeant-at-Arms of the Senate and a retired Army Lieutenant General. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.
2: Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me.
3: And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation.
2: Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style?
3: You know, this past year has clearly presented some unique challenges that certainly me, or I as a leader, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the e- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, chain and be empathetic, and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments I think in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions, uh, on those, on others, uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year, uh, to adapt. Uh, but I'm happy to say that, uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your
2: career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today?
3: You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bussed across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black literally and there was another candidate who ran as vice president white and the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly that was a lesson for me in leadership and and the lesson there was you know perseverance uh have the tenacity uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers and and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president, uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was a that was beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally, So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I I will tell you even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading that that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done.
2: And thank you very much for sharing that with us today.
3: Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.
2: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.
1: Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month. And you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Ask anyone with a DWI if it was worth it. They'll tell you it's no holiday. Impaired driving kills the holiday spirit. Drive sober. Drive smart.
0: Extra Enforcement now on Minnesota roads. A message from the Minnesota Department of Public Safety.